to a Hope 103.2 podcast. Some of you will have heard before about the child born in the Roman Empire over 2,000 years ago who would change the course of history. As this child grew, his power would command the loyalty of thousands upon thousands. By the time he was in his 30s, he'd be seen as the fulfilment of national hopes and the founder of an endless kingdom. His achievements would be considered miraculous, signs of divine authority, particularly the way he established peace in a period marked by chaos. So significant was this man's entry into history that official proclamations known as Gospels were published throughout the world in his honour. One of these Gospel proclamations was inscribed on a stone tablet and was recently uncovered in the city of Priene on the southwest coast of Turkey. It describes how the governor of the region decreed that the year of this Saviour's birth was henceforth to be known as Year One of a whole new calendar system. Let me read the inscription for you. Here it goes. God sent him as a saviour for us, to make war to cease, to create peaceful order everywhere. And the birthday of this God was the beginning for the world of gospels that have come to men through him. So, Paulus Fabius Maximus, the proconsul of the province of Asia, has devised a way of honouring him, namely that the reckoning of time for the course of human life should begin with the year of his birth. Well, who is this saviour I'm talking about? Well, it's not Jesus. It's Gaius Octavius, otherwise known as Caesar Augustus, who lived 63 BC to AD 14. He was the first emperor of Rome. And if my description of Emperor Augustus sounds strangely like an account of Christ, let me assure you this is not because of any spin I've given the retelling. The language of a gospel for humankind, a saviour sent by God, and peace for the whole world, was being used in the Roman Empire before the first Christians came along using the same language. And here we find a window into a subtle but significant portrait of Jesus contained throughout the New Testament. The outrageous claim of the first Christians was that Jesus replaced the Roman emperor as the true Lord of the world. The opening paragraphs of the Gospel of Luke narrate the well-known story of the birth of Christ. Now, let me say, this text is far more than the sweet scene usually sentimentalised in Christmas cards. Throughout this text... Luke borrows long-established Roman imperial terminology and, like a whole bunch of other New Testament writers, deliberately applies this terminology to Jesus, the Jewish Messiah descended from King David and destined to rule the world forever. The gospel of Jesus is here set over and against the gospel of Caesar. So chapter 2 of Luke's gospel begins this way. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David 
He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, there were many censuses like this in the ancient world, and although we don't have corroboration for the one mentioned here, we do know of one conducted a decade later by the same Quirinius. The important thing to note, though, is that a census in the Roman world had nothing to do with working out the proper distribution of health services or improving public transport. It was all about Roman power and wealth. It was a way for the emperor to calculate just how many people he ruled and just how much revenue he could extract from them. Against this background, the mention of the Christ child belonging to the house and line of David fires a subtle but unmistakable shot across the bow of the imperial machinery. Now, if this was the first time we'd heard of the line of David in Luke's gospel, we might have glanced over it as trivial, a mere genealogical detail. But Luke has already told us in chapter 1 what Jesus' connection with David is all about. In the announcement to Mary about her future child, we read these words from Luke chapter 1, 31. You, Mary, will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now this angelic announcement to Mary recalls the fundamental Jewish hope that a descendant of King David would one day rule an eternal kingdom. There can be no missing the point then when we arrive at Luke chapter 2. Just as Emperor Augustus is flexing his imperial muscles around the world, Mary and Joseph are making their way to Bethlehem, the town of David, where Mary is going to give birth to the Messiah promised to King David. The kingdom of Augustus is about to contend with the kingdom of David, with the kingdom of God. And what's especially striking in terms of this clash between the kingdoms of Rome and uh, that of the Jewish Messiah is that this descendant of David, according to the passage I just read out, is going to be hailed as the son of God. Now, many of you listening to me right now will be very used to associating the title son of God with Jesus alone. Here's the interesting thing, though. The people of the Roman Empire... Um, Luke's first readers, knew full well that the current bearer of the title Son of God was none other than the Emperor. As the adopted son of the glorious Julius Caesar, Emperor Augustus assumed the public title Son of the God Julius. That title then was passed on to his heirs. Um, Augustus's adopted son, Tiberius, was emperor for the entire period of Jesus' adulthood. And he informed everyone in the empire, all 50 million of them, that he was the son of God. How he did it was he inscribed the title son of God on the most used coin of the empire. Every denarius, that's the laborer's daily wage, minted during Tiberius's 23-year reign, bore this inscription. Tiberius Caesar Divi Augusti Filius. That is, Tiberius Caesar, son of the god Augustus. For ancient readers then, Luke's presentation of Jesus 
as the Son of God, entitled to an eternal throne, sets up an immediate and subversive contrast between the Roman emperor, with his pretensions to divine sonship, and the Davidic Messiah, God's true son. The New Testament portrait of Jesus as true emperor, I know, has less sting in it for us than it would have had for the people of the first few centuries. But the point of the portrait remains the same. The gospel of Christ, rightly understood, is still very subversive. It calls on men and women to see Christ as eternal and primary, and all human cultures as provisional and temporary. Seeing Christ as emperor involves doing the hardest thing of all, refusing to be a captive to our culture. As much as I like to think of myself as informed and clear-visioned, I'm really just a product of a cultural outlook that is thoroughly Western, thoroughly individualistic, materialistic, monopolistic, image-obsessed and comfort-driven. Today, we might not have an imperial machinery trying to shape our lives, as the people in the first century did, but we have a cultural machinery that more than makes up for that. Seeing Jesus as emperor, though, calls on people to rise above the culture of their day and to sit loosely to the claims of any modern empire and give priority to the values of the empire of Jesus. Viewing Jesus as emperor also means that no part of life is free from his claims as the true Lord of the world. Whatever the practice of some modern believers, historic Christianity has always insisted that Jesus doesn't just rule an ethereal dimension of our existence called religion, our prayers and church attendance and so on. The imperial descriptions of Jesus in the New Testament reminds us that he is the Lord over everything, religious and secular, spiritual and physical, private and public. He has claims over my finances, my career, my politics, my sex life, my intellect, my leisure, my ambitions, and my family. In short, confessing Jesus as the true emperor is about giving him free reign in my life, knowing full well that all other empires are going to pass into oblivion. But Christ's kingdom, that reigns eternal. Hope 103.2 Thanks for listening.